begin. Happy Dad's Day, dads. How many fathers now do we have? Raise your hand. Oh, just a couple more parking their cars. Okay. This morning we are in the Eighth Commandment, which is in verse 15, You shall not steal. Father, we ask that you'd help us to apply this to the life and the day in which we live, knowing that these are foundational blocks for society, for living, and by their directives, we can, by applying it correctly, live a life that is more pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I heard of a robber that went up to a guy downtown and put a gun up to him and said, stick him down. The victim said, he's supposed to say, stick him up. The guy said, no wonder I haven't been making any money at this thing. Now, real thievery is no laughing matter. Sometime back, my next-door neighbor, the family was gone for a weekend, and they came back, and everything in their home was gone. Everything. What had happened is that on a Saturday, somebody took a moving van and backed up in the middle of the day, spent the whole day unloading everything, and drove off in broad daylight. And, of course, nobody thought anything of it. There was just a truck and uh, a moving company, it looked like, was bringing something in, but it was, it was gone. Everything in their home, furniture-wise, was taken. A couple of Sundays ago, not this last Sunday, but the Sunday before, after church, I came home, opened the garage door, parked the car, kept the garage door open for a few minutes, and we always have a policy at home. Close the garage door after you put the car in, in case somebody would come in and steal something. We've heard of that happening. We've had some friends that have had that happen to them. In fact, a couple of friends of ours have had bicycles stolen right out of their garage, so we always put the door down. Well, this day, we didn't do it. We kept it open for maybe five to ten minutes. I went inside, changed, put a t-shirt on and some shorts, and I was going to go study, get ready for the evening service. Nathan is playing in the garage and out front. But he goes to the backyard for just a couple minutes. I go down into my study, and then my wife comes in and she says, Skip, they've taken the bicycles. They? Who's they? Well, I didn't know. I walked out to the garage, and indeed, two of the bicycles that we had in the garage were ripped off. Within just a period of minutes, I had just come home after preaching on Thou Shalt Not Kill. Talk about a test of obedience. I wanted to drive down the road and just run over whoever took those bicycles. Well, if you've ever been broken into or have had something stolen, you know the feeling of vulnerability and frustration. How could they do this? What right do they have to come into my garage or into my home? You feel so open, so vulnerable. And there's feelings of anger. And you're angry not because... You worship what you own, but you have been violated. Your respect to own something has been violated by someone who didn't work for it. Stealing has been a problem ever since the fall of man. There are recorded cases of it all throughout the Scripture. And because of the propensity of man to take something that doesn't belong to him, something that they didn't work for, there have always been precautionary measures taken. In the ancient times, even among the tribal communities, they would set up watchtowers down in the valleys, down wherever their flocks were being kept, to ward off thieves who would come in to steal animals. Another means of stealing 
was by moving markers, boundary markers, that marked what portion of land belonged to you or to a neighbor. If you went to Israel today, in the Valley of Benjamin, there are still fields that are being plowed, and there are stones that are painted white that mark the boundary line from your property to the next person's. The way people would steal land is get up in the middle of the night and move the boundary stone out a couple feet. And then another couple weeks would go by, they'd move the stone out another few feet. Pretty soon you are acquiring a little more land by just moving the marker. And there were biblical prohibitions against moving boundary markers because you were stealing land. Now, is stealing a problem among God's people? Well, it depends who you talk to. There are a couple of different opinions. There's a sociologist from Princeton University who did a study on what people do based on what they say they believe in. And the conclusion of his study, this Princeton sociologist, said that less stealing, less cheating and tardiness and bending of the rules occur among those who attend church at least once a week. Those involved in evangelical fellowship groups demonstrate a higher ethical standard in the workplace. When I read that, I thought, that's great. Until I read George Gallup of the Gallup Poll. He thinks that though religion is up, morality is down. Based on all of his research, all of his studies, all of the polls he's conducted, people are going to church more, reading the Bible more, but their ethics are down more. And he said, professions of faith are not always followed by ethical performance. George Gallup and the Wall Street Journal did a survey of American businessmen, executives, people in the workplace, asked some questions like, do you take stuff from the office? What do you declare on your income tax? What about expense accounts? And he said most of the people that they talked to said that cheating on these things like income tax and expense accounts was not stealing. The alarming thing, says George Gallup, is that people who say they are very religious and people who say they are not religious at all feel the same way almost across the board. He concluded, Many who claim to be religious do not let it affect their personal concept of morality. Now, who's right, the sociologist from Princeton or George Gallup? Well, the best way to answer that question is to apply it personally. What about you? What standard of ethics do you live by? What do you consider stealing? By the way, uh, I was told when we were printing the songbooks that they would be taken. I thought, not this group. So, just in case you're thinking, oh, I'll take one home, thou shalt not steal. And by the way, if you know somebody who stole my bicycle, uh, get him this tape. Now, verse 15 has four words. In the original Hebrew, I hear it has two words. Simply, not steal. You can't get any simpler than that. Not steal. And so I've entitled this message, No Sticky Fingers, in modern vernacular. There's a few things I'd like us to notice about this commandment. First off, it is a primary commandment. That is, it is basic to every society. It's not simply something for Christian nations or for a Judeo-Christian nation. It's something that if you were to go into any society, would be a standard of human behavior anywhere. And it is called a primary or a basic commandment. 
The commandment is given many times in the Scripture and it's elaborated upon. Basically, stealing is a sin against man and God together. You are defrauding your neighbor of his property and respect. You are sinning against God who entrusted something to that person. And restitution must always be made. In the book of Leviticus we read, If anybody sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him or left in his care or stolen, or if he cheats him, or if he finds lost property and lies about it, or if he swears falsely, or if he commits any such sin that people may do, when he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must return what he has stolen or be ta- or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to him or the lost property that he found. The scripture speaks as much about the penalty for stealing as the sin itself. In fact, God is just as interested in seeing restitution for the innocent party as he is in punishing the person who stole it. And there are many different ways that the Bible talks about restitution. By the way, as I have read through the biblical standard for restitution, I like it. Because in the Bible, they didn't have jails. They didn't throw them into a prison. You stole something, you're out of here. In the Bible, you paid it back. You worked hard if you were caught stealing, to pay back that which you have stolen. That's the proper ethic. If something was stolen by fraud, you would pay it back with 20% extra, according to the value of the item. If an animal was stolen, and the animal was in good shape when you were caught, there's nothing wrong with the animal, you'd give back the animal, and another animal, you'd pay double. If you stole an ox or a sheep, you killed the ox or the sheep for food, or you sold it, or it got maimed. If it was an ox, you'd have to pay five oxen to the one you stole. If you stole a sheep, you'd have to pay back four sheep. So the idea was, if you get caught, you're going to have to pay big time. What if you couldn't afford it? Well, you'd work. In fact, you'd have to sell yourself as a slave for a period of time and sort of work in a labor camp or a labor environment to pay back your debt that you have stolen. Turn over a couple pages to Exodus chapter 22. Verse 1, If a man steals an ox or sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep, If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall not be guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed, that if he's he's still alive. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand to his neighbor's goods. 
There was one case of stealing where capital punishment was enacted. That is, if you stole a human being. That was considered the highest, most heinous form of stealing. And oftentimes people would steal other people and sell them as slaves to make money. So if a person was caught kidnapping, he was put to death in the Old Testament. And again, there was no prison system. Restitution was the issue. Pay it back. There was no Alcatraz. There was no Leavenworth. There was no state penitentiaries. People didn't go to prisons to learn from the experts how to do it better next time and not get caught. That happens. Happens a lot. The other night I was flipping through the channels on the television and there was a story. It was 60 Minutes or Hard Copy or one of those news programs. And they interviewed a young lady who was... When when she was pregnant, she found couples around the country who couldn't have children, wanted to adopt, and promised that you could adopt my baby. And uh, she said, but I need support now. I have all of these problems, and I've been left, and nobody loves me, and I've got this problem. So these people would send her thousands of dollars, each separate couple around the country. She made 80-some thousand dollars in a period of several months. She knew that she was deceiving them. She promised her baby to three or four different couples around the country. And when she was caught selling her child, basically, but not really going to give it up, they interviewed her and she said, Yeah, I knew what I was doing was selfish, but I want the money. They said, Where'd you learn this? She said, I learned it in jail. When I was younger, I was put in prison and I listened to other ladies come up with this scam. And I figured out how to do it without getting caught. And they said, Well, that didn't work, did it? Because here you are. But oftentimes, prisons become breeding grounds or training training centers where people learn how to do it better. Restitution was the issue in the Bible. It was also the issue among among the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, Stealing was prevalent in gymnasiums, bathhouses, and at the shipping docks where people would come in. If you were having a nice little swim in the gym or uh, at the bathhouse, people would come in and steal your clothes in the locker room so to speak, walk out with it. If you were caught, the Romans would flog you. That was the restitution. As well as you had to pay it back twice, double, they would flog you for it. Now, some countries have gotten radical. There are some Islamic nations where I hear that if you are caught stealing, they will cut your hand off. Uh, That would be a powerful incentive not to steal, of course. Um, Today, things are different. I think we're soft on crime personally, but the average age for stealing goes down every year while the number of thefts go up. The average criminal who gets caught stealing, we find, goes down and is younger and younger every year. Who can forget the scenes that are still in our minds when the fires broke out in Los Angeles and mothers and children as well as single people, people from almost every walk, would go into the stores and loot and just take out as much as they could take, thinking in some cases it was their right to do it. The U.S. Commerce Department tells us that 4 million people every year are caught shoplifting. 4 million. The distressing thing is that for every one person caught, they tell us 35 people go undetected. Four million are caught times 35. That's how many shoplifting incidents they figure every year. According to one study in Washington, 70% of the people caught shoplifting 
were from a middle-income bracket, 70%. 20% from an upper-income bracket and only 10% from a low-income bracket. Then there are hotel thefts, $500 million a year worth. Hotel managers believe that one out of every three guests in a hotel rips something off, a towel, a plate. Some people even take televisions. In New York City, in one year, 4,600 Gideon Bibles had been stolen from hotel rooms. Bibles! Can you imagine? I'm going to rip off God's Word. Yeah, we'll read Exodus 20 on the way out the door, would you? Thou shalt not steal. I even heard of a classified ad in a medical journal of a university that read, Will the person who stole the jar of alcohol from room 303 kindly return my uncle's appendix? No questions asked. There's people who just can't keep their fingers off of things, stealing Bibles and appendixes. It is a primary commandment. If you leave the United States and go to other nations, you find that this law is also intact. Secondly, it's a presumptive commandment. What I mean by that is that this commandment implies something. If it says, you shall not steal, it implies a couple of things. Number one, it implies that a person has the right to own something. If you shouldn't steal it from someone, it implies that private ownership is all right. Private property ownership is okay. It's legitimate. There has been a debate among societies for a number of years. Of course, the communistic, socialistic bent is that nobody should own anything privately. It's all corporately owned by the state. And of course, the capitalists say, no way, we own something privately. Who's right? Well, actually, if you get down to it, none of them are right. God owns everything. Everything belongs to the Lord. And he entrusts, as a steward, certain things to certain people. But the Bible endorses the right for me to be a steward over certain things and to have private ownership. Now, I have heard some people say, well, no, in the book of Acts, they got rid of everything and they pulled it together communally. And if you're really spiritual, truly spiritual, you'll sell everything and you'll live in a big, giant commune. Well, as I read the book of Acts, that was never enforced. Neither did Peter stand up and say, if you're really spiritual, you'll do this. They just did it, partly because of the necessity of the early church and all the jobs were closed because the Orthodox Jewish community was kicking Christians out. It was by necessity. It was never extolled as something, wow. And the church got into trouble as they did it. Even the people who pulled their resources weren't satisfied. In Acts chapter 6, there was a big debate going on because some of the widows felt they weren't getting a fair share and it caused a division within the early church. So the Bible doesn't forbid private ownership. It actually endorses it. Remember in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira come to the early church. They had some land. They owned it. They sold it. And they were going to give the money to the church. And there are people who say, See, God struck them dead because they didn't give everything. No, God struck them dead because they lied. And they pretended in hypocrisy to be more spiritual than they were. The reason they died by the hand of God as a disciplinary measure wasn't because they decided to own something privately, because, but it was because they lied. Peter, remarking on that instance, says to Ananias and Sapphira, before they kicked the bucket, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? 
And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? It was yours. You owned it. And after you sold it, you have the money. You can do whatever you want with it. But you lied about it to the Holy Spirit and to us. Why is it, by the way, that God gives us as stewards certain things? The Bible endorses the right of private ownership, not so that we can hoard and hoard and hoard, but so that we can share. That's the important facet about this. Paul in Ephesians says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but he must work doing something useful with his hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Why has God entrusted you with things? Just for you to enjoy? Partly. But that's not all, but to share with those who have a need. Secondly, this commandment not only assumes that you have the right to private ownership, but it implies that there are legitimate ways to acquire property. If you can't steal something, how do you get a hold of certain things? There are legitimate ways. Number one, good old hard work. Number two, investing and trading. And number three, faithful praying. The Bible extols labor. It encourages people to work hard. Again, in Ephesians, the one who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work and do something useful with his own hands. I want to address those of you hardworking fathers on this Father's Day who are assembled here this morning. My hat goes off to you, dads. I had a dad who worked hard and gave us that work ethic, that it's good to work and to support a family. And I hope that today you are being appreciated for being a hard worker, and in many cases, probably most cases, the breadwinner. A lot of dads are put down by people. Look, he works so hard. What do you want him to do, quit? Now, I admit, you can be overcommitted. You can be a workaholic, and your family can suffer because of it. But I think it's time to appreciate men who work hard, who keep that diligent biblical work ethic. Many a family has a diligent father to thank because they have food, they have clothes, and they have a home. And instead of saying, yeah, oh, they're just always working, hey, praise the Lord. They're providing for the family. I bless my father every Father's Day. Just thank him for that work ethic, that working hard, that diligence at his business. And God made him successful at it, but it's because he worked hard. St. Augustine, in his confessions about his own father, wrote, No one had anything but praise for my father, who, despite his slender resources, was always ready to provide for his son with all that was needful to enable him to travel so far for the purpose of studying. Many of our townsmen, far richer than my father, went to no such trouble for their own children's sake. It's not easy being a father. Somebody once said a dad is somebody who carries pictures where money used to be. Oh, he's got the reminder. Oh, here's the kids. This is what I spent all the money that I used to have on. But I love them, and I gladly do it for them. So you hardworking fathers, keep at it. Keep working hard. Don't let anybody give you a line that you're, you shouldn't be working. You should be. And don't stop there, but pass on that biblical work ethic to your children. Just don't give them everything they want. Have them work for it. Have them appreciate what it means to work hard and be rewarded for hard labor instead of just spoiling them with everything that they want. It's a good ethic. Secondly, we mentioned trading and investing. Trading and investing. 
Proverbs 31 speaks about one of the first business women of the Old Testament and commends her because she considers a field and she buys it. She was an investor. In the New Testament, Jesus has a parable about the talents. And a landowner had several servants. Some were wise and some were foolish. And the wise servants came after the man had returned from a far journey. And he said, remember you gave me those five talents? I've gained five more. He invested. And Jesus commended that the master would say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over the small things. I will make you ruler over many. But to the wise and slothful servant, he didn't do it. And the master said, You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Both of those are legitimate biblical means of gaining, of acquiring private property. Thou shalt not steal, but here's a couple things that you can do, and the Bible speaks about rewarding diligent labor, investment, and trading. There's a third way. We should talk about it. Faithful praying. You say, where does that fit in? I'll tell you where it fits in. There are times when opportunities fail, people lose their jobs, they don't have a source of income any longer. They go out and they look for a job. Nothing opens up. Things begin to shrivel up in terms of resources. What do they do? Well, the Bible speaks about trusting in the Lord, not being slothful, not sitting back when you could look for a job and say, I'm just going to pray about it eight hours a day. No, put feet on your prayers, but still trust the Lord. I've seen God miraculously provide. I've seen God's people rally around and God provide for those who have a need. Thirdly and finally, this is not only a primary commandment, it's not only a presumptive commandment, that is it implies things, but it is a prohibitive commandment. And I zero in on not in that verse. You shall not. Remember we said this is an accepted norm for society in general. However, the Bible tells us why it's wrong to steal. The reason it's wrong to steal is that when a person has something legitimately, that is, he hasn't stolen it, he hasn't ripped somebody off, if he has it, that it's because God has imparted it to that person. For whatever reason that belongs to God, God is the one who has imparted the gift to that person. James says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow or variation of turning. In Deuteronomy we read, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. So when you steal, when you steal, you not only sin against man, but you sin against God who has entrusted the resources to man. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I'm not going to have to worry about stealing oxen or sheep or moving my little property marker outside my house. But there are other ways that this commandment can be broken. Let me give a few. You can steal from your employer. That happens frequently. This is what often happens in the workforce. A person who was hired by another after a period of time gets bored with his job and starts rationalizing and justifying, saying, they don't pay me enough. I'm a good employee. I deserve a lot more money. I deserve a lot more credit. And so with that rationalization, they start taking that to other extremes, like calling in sick when they're really not sick. Well, I have a certain amount of sick days coming to me, and I haven't taken them. Yeah, but you're not sick, and you're robbing your employee. He made a contract with you that says, 
I'll give you a full day's wage for a full day's work. And the sick days are a concession if you're sick not to be abused. Also, you can take things from the office. Oh, they'll never miss that pen. They'll never miss that eraser. They'll never miss that desk. I'm worth it. Companies shrink, they call it, shrinkage factor every year because employees steal things. A drug chain down in the southeast United States started what they called integrity testing for their employees. They started cracking down on people who were ripping off from the company and they've already saved $400,000 because people were taking things. What about making phone calls when you're not given the freedom to do so? Oh, I've got the phone. It's long distance. I'll call so-and-so and then I'll stay on the phone for a long time and I don't have to pay for it. That is stealing from your employer. What about getting into work late, leaving early? What about long breaks, extended lunches, two, three, four hours? It happens. It happens. Christians of all people ought to maintain the highest standards, the highest ethic. There's a study that records that workers in America admit that they spend over 20% of their time at work goofing off. That's one day a week, one day out of five doing nothing, talking in the office, standing around. They've got nothing to do, so they engage for so many minutes in just fruitless conversation and just really wasting company time. In Ephesians 5, we read, Servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That's the way to approach your job. I'm working for Jesus Christ. Is he happy with my work, or am I doing sloppy work that he wouldn't be proud of, that he wouldn't like? I had a friend when I worked in Southern California in a hospital, a young, zealous Christian who wanted to share the gospel with everybody, wanted to preach the gospel to everybody he saw. He was an orderly. I worked in the radiology department. His job was to go upstairs, get patients, put them on the gurneys, bring them downstairs for their exams. The supervisor would say, this guy hasn't come back for a long period of time. It would take him 20, 30 minutes sometimes to get a patient when it should only take 5 or 10 minutes. So I decided, since I knew he was a young believer and I was a little older believer, that I'd have a few words with him. I said, Jay, what's been happening? You've been taking a lot of time getting the patients. He says, oh, I'm having great opportunities to witness to him. I sit him down in the room and I share the gospel before I put him on the gurney for their exam. What? That's great, Jay. But don't do it on company time. Stop preaching the gospel on company time. That's blasphemy, brother. No, it's not. It's a good work ethic. They're not paying you to witness. They're paying you to work. If you're really concerned about their soul, stay late after work on your own time. Take your lunch break and go up to their room. But don't use your boss's time and say that it's God's work. That's a crummy witness. And unfortunately, it happens all too often. You can also steal from an employee, those of you who own your own companies, by refusing to pay them what they're worth, by refusing to pay them on time. We read in the scripture, do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. And I think that this also speaks about paying bills on time. You know that Christian ministries, unfortunately, are the worst offenders at paying bills. 
churches, radio ministries are often the ones who don't pay. And, and I've talked to managers of stations who have said, these people have this account. They've owed us money for a long time. I want to call the collection agencies, but it's a church. What should I do? I say, you call them or I'll call the collection agency, either one, but get some. That's a crummy witness. We had to pay our bills on time. You can also steal from the government. Tax time. What do you declare on your income tax? Changing the numbers a little bit. Do you remember in Capernaum, the temple people came up to Peter and they said, does your master pay the temple tax? He said, yeah. Jesus knew what was going on, drew Peter aside and said, Peter, from whom did the kings of the earth exact taxes? From their own children or from strangers? Peter said, from strangers. Jesus said, then the sons are free, they're exempt, nevertheless. What he's saying is the earth is the Lord's, we're God's children. But nevertheless, lest we offend them, let's pay taxes. We don't want to offend them. So Peter, go down to the lake, the first fish that you catch, pull it out and it'll have a coin in its mouth. Wouldn't that be great every tax time? Open your mouth, there's a check for the exact amount for the IRS. That'd be great. And Peter paid the taxes. At another time, Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He took a coin and he said, Whose mug is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. Then give Caesar what belongs to him. And then give to God what belongs to him. Now, nobody likes dealing with the IRS. Everybody loathes tax time. Some are bracing at what could happen in the future with the tax situation in this country. All sorts of things are being proposed. But let me read to you something you probably don't want to hear then, out of Romans 13. Therefore, you must be subject for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Now listen to this. For they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Have you ever thought of the IRS guy as God's minister? They are God's ministers and they attend continually. Oh boy, do they. They contend continually for this thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. We don't like to pay taxes, but if we don't pay honestly, you are robbing the government of their right to tax you. And with that money to pay government workers, that doesn't mean you sit back and you don't oppose or get involved in the political process to say, that's not right, we want to fight for this and that. But once the tax is enacted, you've got to pay up, cough it up, and pay taxes to whom taxes are due. In fact, someone even suggested the best way to take care of our national deficit is for everybody to pay back taxes. That would take care of it because so many people have cheated on their income taxes. Then finally, a person can steal from God. You can steal from your neighbor, you can steal from an employer, an employee, but you could also rob from God. In the book of Malachi, a list of things that the children of Israel were not attending to were brought up by this prophet, this man of God. And God, through the prophet, says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, says the Lord. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? And God replies in tithes and offerings. If you know me at all, you know that I don't like to talk about it. In fact, usually people say, you never talk about tithing. 
I say, I talk about tithing when the Bible speaks about tithing. When the Bible doesn't speak about tithing, I don't mention it. The Bible mentions tithing a lot less than most preachers do. But a person can rob God. The children of Israel robbed and stole from God by refusing to pay tithes and offerings. And then God says afterwards, test me, try me. And see if when you tithe, I won't open the store rooms of heaven and give you a blessing you're unable to contain. To a lot of Christian people, the idea of giving 10% of their income to God's work is foreign to them. 10% of their income. And in the Old Testament, they gave not only 10%, they gave 30% total. 10% was just sort of the bill. Beyond that, there were special offerings for the poor. There were things for the tabernacle and the temple. You say, yeah, but that's the law. We're under grace. Well, I agree with you, but... Under grace, do you do less? In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle says, we shouldn't do it with a grudging heart. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. The word in Greek is hilaros. We get the word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. Now, there's a lot of people who don't give hilariously. They give, oh, here it comes. Got to write that check. Well, listen, keep it. If you're not going to do it with an open heart, don't do it. But to refuse to do it is to rob God, according to the Scripture. I detest when I hear on television or the radio people making God out to be a pauper. No, God's broke this week. He's in the poorhouse. There he is on the corner with his hands out. Poor God, can't get a job. You've got to support him. or this, If you don't support this ministry, it'll die. I say, let it die. If you're going to have to make God out to be a pauper and beg every time you're on the air, cut the cord. The truth of the matter, however, is if God's people would support God's work, there would not have to be the incessant begging. And I think that those ministries that are worthy of support ought to be supported. There are people who do rip off, and I would say that Ministries can be just as guilty of stealing as anybody else. Jesus told the Pharisees and the people in the temple, you're making my father's house a den of thieves because they were stealing from the people. But God's true work deserves to be supported. You shall not steal. You shall not steal because you have a God who sees everything. And there are ways that you can say, I don't steal, but you can compromise in other areas. There was a young boy who was working in a store, a general store out in the country. A man came in to buy some cloth. He knew that the owner of the store wasn't there. So he said, son, cut off a couple extra yards for me. Your master isn't in. Nobody will see. You won't get in trouble. The boy said, you are mistaken, sir. My master is always in. I am a Christian. God sees. God sees that number on the income tax form. God sees what nobody else sees or needs to see. We take up our issues with our Creator. A final word as we close. If stealing has been your problem from your employer, from the government, from God or whatever, one of the greatest comforts to me is that God forgives thieves. The last person Jesus granted forgiveness to before He died on the cross was a thief that was dying next to Him. Two thieves, one on either side, equally close to God, with equal opportunities. One hardened his heart, one opened his heart. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That quick can God forgive a person who's involved in thievery. Let's pray.
Father, again, we thank you on this Father's Day for your goodness, your graciousness, your love toward us. Lord, we pray that we would be found blameless in areas of our life. That this basic societal commandment would not be broken by your children. That we would seek to be fair and honest in all of our dealings. For you say that a just weight is a delight to the Lord. Lord, you see, you're the boss. And we thank you for your forgiveness, Lord, when we fall and when we sin. When we come to you and honestly confess and honestly repent, you're so gracious. And so, Lord, restore and forgive now that we might steal no more, but work with our hands to share with those in need. We ask it in Jesus' name.